church. If you have a copy of scripture, open it with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Last week as we began our study of the book of 2 Timothy, we considered the great desire that Paul had that the gospel would be preserved. And this week, that thought process really continues as it does throughout the book of 2 Timothy. And specifically, in this chapter, Paul calls Timothy and all Christians to labor intentionally for the gospel. That's really what the, the message is this morning, that we should labor with intentionality for the gospel. Now, we established last week that Paul was writing to his young protege, who was a pastor. And, and Paul is telling Timothy how to pursue ministry. But we also established that this book is not just for pastors. It's in the Christian canon because there are things here that benefit all Christians. <clears throat> and what to look for in a pastor, certainly, but beyond that, we understand here what Christians should embody themselves. In one sense, you could say that we, we are privied in the book of 2 Timothy to an apostolic seminary class. And as I began to think about that this week, I recalled a, a conversation that I had with a mentor of mine not long after I began to consider a, a pursuit of ministry in the pastoral office. We were discussing the qualifications for eldership in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And as we discussed those, I asked this brother, aren't these really things that every Christian should pursue? I mean, I get that not everyone is gifted with the ability to preach and teach, but aside from that, isn't this just what a mature Christian looks like? Those qualifications found in 1 Timothy 3? And he, he smiled at me and he said, well, absolutely. But you can't tell people that. And I was a little perplexed when he said that. But then I realized what he meant was you can't tell people that because they won't believe it. In, in our culture, people typically think that there's some categorical or, or mystical difference between pastors and other Christians. But I'm here to tell you this morning, that's just not true. And actually, this is something that, that comes to light as we consider the text of 2 Timothy over and over. Yes, this is instruction that Paul left to a, a struggling and timid young pastor. And some of the content here is relevant specifically to the pastoral office. Yet a great deal of it is useful for instruction about how to simply be a mature Christian. So in this chapter, Paul gives a charge to Timothy and, and all who would be mature Christians to labor intentionally for the gospel. And in doing this, the apostle really makes two points about how to labor intentionally for the gospel. So we're going to consider these two points this morning. In the first place, Paul says that we are to labor intentionally for the gospel 
by making disciples through sacrifice. And secondly, he says that we are to make disciples through the scriptures. So we make disciples through sacrifice and we make disciples through the scriptures, Paul tells us. We've already read the text and so let's pray together and then we'll dive in and consider these two points that Paul makes in the text. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we we ask this morning that as we begin to consider your word, that you would make it clear to us, God. Illuminate your word for us, Lord, and keep me free from error in preaching it, Lord. Make it clear to us that we might be shaped by your word, Lord, and in being shaped by your word, that we would submit to it in obedience. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Paul continues his letter to Timothy by first reiterating that grace is what motivates the Christian life and ministry. He doesn't just actually remind Timothy of this, but he instructs him there in the text to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. However, Paul wants Timothy to be strengthened, not merely for his own sake. He desires that Timothy be strengthened in order to be sustained in gospel ministry, you see. This is obvious as he continues his command in the same sentence. Look at it there. He says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. You see, as we've mentioned, Paul had no time to waste as he was writing 2 Timothy. He had no time to waste in his communication, and he he didn't want to be misunderstood. So he stays laser-focused throughout the book on this main objective of Timothy to preserve and pass on the gospel message. And to that end, Paul tells Timothy here in verse 1 that he needs to focus on the grace given him in the Lord Jesus so that he can do one thing. And that one thing is to make disciples. That's really what Paul is instructing the young pastor to do here. Make disciples. That that phrase, what you have heard, it references the, the whole content of what Timothy had listened to Paul teach and preach in various places and to various crowds. Having followed and served alongside Paul for some time, Timothy had become familiar with the great doctrines of Scripture. Paul was faithful to unpack them in all the different places he went, and Timothy was faithful to listen as Paul did so. But, you see, God's design is not just that the Scriptures would simply be fed into an individual. No, God's design is that the Scriptures would flow into and then out of believers. Now, the the specific command that Paul gives to Timothy here is clearly connected to Timothy's pastoral office. Paul's telling Timothy to raise up elders within the church. We understand this because these faithful men, we're told, were specifically to be able to teach others. The, The zeal for gospel multiplication 
couldn't be more apparent. We, we hear of four generations here of disciples. We read of the gospel moving from Paul to Timothy, then Timothy to these faithful men, and then from these faithful men on to the next group who would receive the teaching of Scripture. And in saying this, Paul is, is outlining part of the pastor's job. Pastors should always be looking out for and, when possible, training other men who can lead and teach in the church. This serves both the, the, the biblical model of a plurality of pastors in the local congregation, and it ensures that the next generation is not left without someone trained to teach the scriptures. So this has relevance to Timothy's pastoral office. Yet, on another level, this is just what all believers are called to do. You'll remember the Great Commission, Jesus' final command to his followers just before he ascended to heaven. It's there he says, go therefore and what? Make disciples. The Christian who isn't a pastor still has this command from the Lord to be about the business of making disciples. Every one of those redeemed by the Lord Jesus has been given a mission to pursue. And when we hear that, that those redeemed have a mission in life, please understand that when the Bible uses those terms, it does not mean what might be implied often in our 21st century context. In our culture, it can be interpreted as, yes, the Lord has redeemed me. He has set me free and saved me so that I can pursue what I determined to be my mission and purpose in life. And that understanding, friends, is woefully wrong. When the Bible speaks of being redeemed, we need to understand that is slave language, friends. It does not mean that you were simply once a slave and now you are free. It means that you were the property of one person, but have been purchased to become the possession of another. You were held captive to sin and shame, yet now Jesus has set you free from those shackles and bound you by faith to himself. And this, you see, aside from his divinity, is what gives Jesus the authority not to request, but to command that you fulfill the mission that he has given to his people. That mission is to make disciples or, or students. That's, that's what the term disciple means, a learner. And, and Christians, as Christians, we, we take these truths that we know and we share them with others. We entrust them, to use Paul's language here. But Paul wants to be clear about what faithful disciple-making entails. The apostle does not want Timothy or us to be surprised by the reality of what a life of disciple-making will bring. Paul begins likening the Christian life to some things that are universally understood as sacrificial. And as the lead into this, he tells us plainly that it will bring suffering. In fact, he doesn't just tell Timothy to expect suffering. Look at the text. He gives Timothy an imperative, a command to share 
in suffering. As to imply that if your aim is to make disciples, suffering will be a part of that. So we read that this is, this is part of what it means to be a, a good soldier of Christ Jesus. This is Paul's first analogy. And with this comparison, we're challenged to not get entangled, not get caught up in the pursuits of the world. Look at verse 4. We read, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So also, the one who's been bought by the blood of Christ is not to allow the pleasures and enjoyments of this life and this world to distract them. No, they must not distract us from the mission that the Master has given us. We sacrifice pursuing the life that most of the world pursues, that life of ease, and for what reason? That we might please the one who has set us free from sin and death. Paul goes on here to say that an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And from this we gather that the faithful Christian life has fixed guidelines, rules. We are not free to engage in Christianity any old way we please. Sure, you can do that. But the apostle says that you'll forfeit any reward to be had. And worse yet, you may find yourself not even playing the game. The athlete sacrifices and and makes demands of their body in order to accomplish whatever maneuver the game demands for victory. So we sacrifice whatever conception of the Christian life that we may have in submission to the, the rules that govern the game, if you will. The final parallel that Paul makes to the Christian life is that of the hardworking farmer. There are many times in Scripture where the Christian life and disciple-making is, is likened to farming. The farmer toils. There, there are many things that are noteworthy about the farmer's life. But here, Paul's really zeroing in on, on one aspect of the farmer's labor. And that is that his labor is hard. For the, the farmer, there, there's a lot of effort and a lot of sweat that goes into a harvest, much less a, a good harvest. Therefore, when the crop is harvested, Paul says that the farmer should reap the reward of his labor. And from this, we can only understand Paul to be saying that it is those who've labored hard in disciple-making that will reap a reward. In each of these examples, what shines through is that the soldier, the athlete, the farmer, all have a clear goal, a mission, if you will. And they must be intentional and make intentional sacrifices in order to achieve success. Brothers and sisters, it's clear that for pastors and for just faithful Christians, we have a mission to accomplish, making disciples. And the apostle tells us that it is axiomatic, 
It is always true that discipleship requires sacrifice. The kind of sacrifice, the kind of suffering that you endure may vary from season to season. It may vary from person to person, but it's always present. Maybe it's a sacrifice of time that you make. Maybe it's a sacrifice of money as you fund gospel endeavors or simply forego overtime at work so that you can devote your time to a fellow Christian. It could be that you need to forfeit personal pleasures and hobbies that, while enjoyable, demand attention and resources that you know crowd out the potential for more disciple-making. Timothy certainly knew that even his health and very life might be required of him in the mission of making disciples. He had witnessed the the beatings and mistreatment of Paul. And now, as Paul sat on death row for preaching and making disciples, he openly sends letters to Timothy about how to keep this mission going. (laughs) You can almost imagine the timid young pastor thinking as he received these letters, thanks, Uh, did the uh, guards ask where I lived? And this wasn't lost on the Apostle Paul. He he knew that the Christian life of disciple-making required strength. He knew that being devoted in this way required something more than what was natural to us. Not any kind of natural strength that he desired Timothy to have. No. If we're to live a faithful Christian life, it requires spiritual strength. And it's for that reason that the apostle began this flow of thought up in verse 1, telling Timothy to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And it's why in verses 8 through 13, he puts Timothy in remembrance of the victorious Christ and his word. Paul tells Timothy and us, look there, to remember Jesus Christ. That term remember, there is, it's set in the active voice, meaning that this should be a continuous thing. We should always be remembering Jesus Christ. And how is it that we are strengthened by remembering our Lord? What's well, in what we remember about Him? Look at verse 8. There we are told how we remember the Lord Jesus. It says, remember Him risen from the dead. As we're charged to live lives of sacrificial disciple-making, we remember Jesus who humbled Himself to become a man. Jesus who, though tried and tempted, lived a sinless life. The Jesus who took on the agony and humiliation of the cross in order to bear the wrath of God for sin. This Jesus we remember and find strength from Him because though the greatest earthly authorities would smite Him and put Him to death, He did not stay dead. No, the Messiah King, the offspring of David, Paul says, was risen from the dead. And we take comfort in knowing that no bad thing 
can ultimately rival the purposes of God to save His elect. Yes, in our earthly life, in our earthly bodies, we may be oppressed. Paul says that he was actively suffering and bound with chains as a criminal. He had been abused physically and imprisoned. There's nothing to be misunderstood about this. Not only was he imprisoned, not only was he mistreated bodily, but his reputation was maligned. He had become a criminal. That's a technical term that he's using there to refer to his criminality now due to his gospel ministry. Yet Paul finds strength in knowing that though he may be bound with chains, the chains of death could not hold the Lord Jesus. And they may not bind His Word either. So, when we are faithful to make disciples, we we may very well suffer. And it's growing more and more likely in our culture that we'll suffer from making disciples. But the purposes of God in saving those who are His and sustaining them to eternal glory cannot be thwarted, friends. And it's, it's there in eternal glory, you see, that we ourselves will certainly find rest with the Lord Jesus, freed from suffering anymore. And to reinforce this idea, Paul, in verses 11 through 13, he includes what is either a first century hymn or a first century confession. The apostle uses the classification that this is that this saying is trustworthy. That phrase is exclusive to the pastoral epistles. That phrase, trustworthy. It means that what follows is a well-known maxim, a truism. There are four couplets here, and each of them teach the same truth. If we are united to Christ in this life, we will be united with Him in the life to come. If we identify with him, you see it there, and sacrifice for him in the world, then we will share in his life and victory in heaven. These things, Paul says, are established in the word of God, and the Lord will not be false to his word, we are told. Not only does Paul tell Timothy of the, the kind of life demanded of a disciple maker, He goes on to describe the means by which disciples are made. In the second part of the chapter, Paul admonishes Timothy to make disciples through the Scriptures. To make disciples through the Scriptures. As you look at verses 14 through 26, you'll see seven references to the significance of words. And what the Apostle does here is he sets up a contrast between the words of God and the words of false teachers. And in doing this, Paul tells Timothy that it is the Scriptures that characterize true discipleship. Because it's the Scriptures that make mature Christians. Paul gets specific with Timothy and his context here, telling the young pastor what he should tell his congregation. Look at the text. The apostle says in verse 14 that 
In a very solemn manner, Timothy should charge the church not to quarrel about words. He goes on to say that they should avoid irreverent babble in verse 16. Verse 23, he says, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Because again, they breed quarrels. Now, it's, it's not clear what all false teaching was receiving attention there at the church at Ephesus. One is mentioned specifically, namely in verse 18, that the resurrection had already happened. But what is clear is that this irreverent babble being discussed was heretical. It was erroneous to the point of undermining the gospel itself. Paul says in verse 16, these ignorant controversies lead people into more and more ungodliness. And not just that, but verse 18, upset. Or or some versions read, overturned the faith of some. If Timothy and faithful Christians are to be intentionally making disciples, then these things have no place in the church. Paul says have nothing to do with these things. Yet, as is the the pattern of Scripture, we're not left with only a negative command of what not to do. We are told here what we should be focused on. What what the focus of church leaders and mature Christians should be as we seek to make disciples. Look at verse 15. What does Paul tell Timothy to focus on? He says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed Rightly handling the word of truth. This, Paul says, is what constitutes true and God-honoring discipleship. Discipleship that focuses on the word. Now, of course, in the context of Paul's instruction to Timothy, this admonition to rightly handle the word of truth was primarily concerning his preaching. And this should be instructive for the modern audience as well, concerning what makes for good preaching. Preaching that might be God-honoring and approved by God. It's preaching that focuses on the Word of God. And not just focuses on it, but preaching that, as Paul says, rightly handles the Word of truth. The idea behind rightly handling there is to deal carefully with it. There there is much preaching that starts with the Word of God and and may even often reference the Word of God, but it wrongly interprets the Scripture for one reason or another. And Paul says, Timothy, that won't do. Good preaching, Timothy, God-honoring preaching, is that which starts with the Word, stays with the Word, and then carefully makes application of the Word. There will be more on right preaching later in this letter, but, but here it's clear that Timothy is to make disciples through his preaching by emphasizing and exalting the Word of God. However, preaching is not the only avenue of disciple-making in the church. And as much as the preacher is to focus on the Scriptures 
in his primary role of discipling the church, it's just as true for everyone else in the church. You see, while there may be more than one avenue for making disciples, Paul is crystal clear that there is but one means by which we are to make disciples, and it is through the Word of God. Therefore, it's not just to pastors, but all have this responsibility to know the Word. Not only are we to know it for ourselves, but we know it for our our brothers and sisters, our fellow church members. And in knowing it, we continually set it before one another. Be that in a a systematic fashion, like in a class or a, a Bible study, or be that in ordinary conversation with one another. In doing this, we, we, we build one another up in the faith, you see. We, we make disciples of one another. But what must never be missed is that it's the word that is necessary for discipleship. Remember Jesus' words that, that highlight this reality in the high priestly prayer that we read as he prays to the Father in John 17. Praying there, he asked the Father that he would sanctify his disciples in the truth. And he clarifies saying, your word is truth. To put it bluntly, friends, we should be making disciples of the lost. And we should be making disciples one another, of one another at all times. But if the word is absent from your conversations with people, then you may be engaging in friendship, but you're not engaging in discipleship. You see the scriptures in discipleship. That's what focuses us. It's what focuses us where we should be focused. That's that's Paul's point here to Timothy. Devote yourself to the word of God so that it, it crowds out all those other words that lead to ruin. He says, now you may be thinking, well, I I know that in Timothy's context there at the church at Ephesus, they had to, you know, battle this irreverent babble and and people would get caught up in discussing foolish controversies. But what does that have to do with the modern church? Are there modern controversies that threaten the foundations of the gospel? And the answer to that is yes. Yes, there are philosophies that arise in every age that threaten to undermine the gospel. And this morning, I I could rattle off a a number of terms that would bring various cultural conversations and ideologies to mind that could spawn all kinds of different discussion and disagreement here. Justice, anyone? Some of these philosophies that are talked about today and associated with these terms, some of these are anti-gospel philosophies. One such philosophy denies the very possibility of atonement for sin. And frankly, friends, churches all around us ignore what Paul says here and run headlong into discussion of these things. Some enter the discussion in support of these philosophies, even becoming shaped by them. 
while others devote themselves to systematically dismantling these philosophies. But both of those approaches ignore what God commands of us in this text. He says not to quarrel about these. In verse 23, look, he says, have nothing to do with them. And it's not that the apostle doesn't want the church to understand why these philosophies are wrong. But he wants the scriptures to be so present and so clear in the church that when these controversies do arise in conversations, mature Christians just go, ha, that's wrong, and move on. Avoid them, the apostle says. And this is the tactic that God would have us to employ for at least three reasons. The first and the most obvious being that we don't want to stir up an unhealthy curiosity within the immature, so as to not undermine their faith in the true gospel, no matter how great the cultural pressures may be to just fall in line. The second reason for simply avoiding these controversies is so that there's no occasion for maintaining a pseudo-spiritual life. Put more simply, We should avoid talking about controversies so that love for doctrine and ideas doesn't cloak a spiritual immaturity. Now, listen, I'm I'm just as convicted as anyone at this point because I love ideas. And I love talking about the consequences of ideas just as much as anyone. But the truth is that if we're not very careful, friends... We can mask a shallow spiritual life by often talking about the inadequacy of false teachers and other churches' doctrine. There's a a real danger here of deceiving both yourself and those around you concerning your spiritual life and communion with God. If I may speak pastorally for just a moment, brothers and sisters, if you struggle to pray Consistently, because you haven't stood in awe of the wonder that is Christ's work of reconciliation recently? Or let's say you struggle to beat some sin because you've not long meditated on the magnificent cost to the Lord Jesus of the atonement. But you're all too ready to jump into a conversation and talk about the inadequate view of the atonement that some philosophy of the day espouses, then friend, please heed this warning. Something is amiss in your spiritual life. We have too many delicacies set before us in the Word of God to feast on with one another, to focus our time feeding on junk food, spiritual junk food. Let's give ourselves to the delicacies set before us in the Word of God. Now quickly, we should consider a third reason why God would have us to avoid altogether this irreverent babble. And this consideration really brings us to the end of the passage where we read this. Verse 24 and following. Look there with me. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now this, again, obviously is directed primarily at the elders of the church. You see there the description of the Lord's servant requiring the ability to teach. And we we affirmed that this morning, that this is a necessity for pastors. But again, there's a principle here that applies beyond just the pastor. Notice what Paul desires for those teaching and advocating for foolish controversies antithetical to the gospel. Does he want them humiliated? Does he want them to just go away, never to be heard again, perishing in their folly? No. No, he doesn't. What do we see here that Paul wants? We'll look in verse 25 with me. Verse 25 says that the hope is that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. This church is why we simply steer clear of ignorant controversies. This is why we don't host conferences parsing out all of the reasons why one person or philosophy is an error. Because when you do that, you quickly become known for what you're against. And in the mind of the one who's fallen into whatever error you might be talking about, they don't see the what. They see the who. They think not about you being against that philosophy. They think you're against me. But what's clear from this passage is that we are not to set ourselves against anyone. We welcome all. And we may ask them to be quiet for a little while, okay? But we welcome all, hoping, praying that God may, to quote Paul, perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And how does that happen? Through the Word of God. Remember what Paul says in Romans Chapter 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The charge is clear, brothers and sisters. Remembering the the victorious Christ, we are to give ourselves sacrificially to making disciples. And we are to make disciples through the word of Christ. It's our only hope for growing in Christ, and it's our only hope for bringing others to the saving knowledge of Christ. So let us be about this work, church. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do ask now that we would respond in obedience to your word. Lord, please. Help us to commit ourselves to sacrificially making disciples. God, help us to remember the grace of the Lord Jesus and His victorious resurrection that we might find strength to engage in this disciple-making. Father, it is difficult at times. Help us to count the cost 
And in doing that, God, we do pray that you would help us to savor your word and to know it. Father, fill us with your word that we may make disciples of the lost and that we might grow in Christ together as we make disciples of one another here. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing as we close before we take the Lord's Supper.